Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome to episode 55 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose-aligned and performance-proven leaders. And speaking of purpose-aligned and performance-proven leaders, today our guest is John Oram. Dr. John Oram is the founder and CEO of vertically integrated cannabis company, NUG, which operates the highest volume cannabis extraction facility in California. John holds a PhD and MS degrees in environmental chemistry and engineering from the University of California, Los Angeles, and a bachelor's degree in analytical chemistry and biochemistry from the University of Colorado at Boulder. A veteran of the industry since the early 2000s, Dr. Oram possesses extensive knowledge of how to operate a successful cannabis company from seed to sale. Prior to founding NUG, he co-founded CW Analytical Laboratories, recognized as the most trusted analytical laboratory in the state of California to establish standardized testing and certification protocols in order to ensure the safety and quality of medical cannabis. John, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. It's good to have you. Hi, Max. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, let's start out. Uh, first of all, we're, let's start out uh, talking about your company, Nug. Give us a breakdown of what the company looks like today and where you see the business in six months, number of employees. Just give us a snapshot of Nug and, and kind of what you've built so far. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Nug is a vertically integrated cannabis company. We are based in Oakland, California. We currently only operate in the state of California. We have about uh, just under 250 employees, and when I say we're vertically integrated, and we span, that means we span every every aspect of the business. We cultivate our own uh, products. We then uh, extract and infuse into manufactured goods. We distribute those products to across the state, and also to our own retail stores, of which we have four stores open now, uh, all in Northern California. Awesome. And how many employees do you currently have? Uh, just about 240. Yeah. Yeah. Almost, almost to 250 now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I can't wait to dig further into this. Let's talk about what do you, what do you view? Cause I, I look at, by the way, and we'll get further into this, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but somebody that has come from kind of the technical side, uh, the analytical side, uh, is, is very interesting to me. Um, so just, and we'll get more into that later, but what do you see next on the cannabis horizon? I always, I always like to start the show with some interesting stuff so people continue to listen. So I want to hear from, you know, from a subject matter expert, you know, what do you see next on the cannabis horizon? Sure. Uh, well, so most of my opinions that I'm going to give today are going to be based on California. I mean, that's the market we're in and that's what I know very well. And it is in fact, the largest cannabis market in the world. So it, that's, that's the reason why we focus on California because it is so big and there's so many opportunities. Uh, but my my statements of where the industry is going to go and where, and specifically where where California is going to go is 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 somewhat jaded and maybe a little bit uh, unexpected to some of your audience. Uh, the real answer there is that <laughs> the California market is going to 
to eventually be where we thought it would be three to four years ago. Uh, when, when regulations started in California in 2018, there was already a very, very large cannabis industry. Uh, it was just uh, operating under a patchwork of, re of regulations. When statewide regulations came in, it really hamstrung the industry. It constricted massively, and we've just had a, been a, had a lot of challenge, challenges as an industry rebuilding. Um, and actually, I feel this is the year for that. I, I, this is the year that we're going to be coming out of that. So you're going to see more store openings. You're going to see better product offerings. You're going to see lower prices and better quality of services throughout California. Awesome. And this, that might uh, go into this next question. What are you currently working on that gives you the most energy? Retail store openings. <laughs> it, really, I mean, we started, Nug started as a cultivation and, and manufacturing company. So we were all on the production side and we were building out that pipeline. But we started to see early on that we needed to control uh, the brand experience. And the best way to do that uh, was to uh, control, uh, I'm sorry, to control retail distribution. So a few years ago, we started working on retail projects. We now have three stores opening, are open, right? We have our fourth store opening this weekend, and we've got uh, an additional four stores in our pipeline. That's what really is exciting to me. I like working on uh, new store openings. I, I really like working on new store openings. Awesome. And we'll dig a little bit more into that later on. Where does the, uh, where does the name Nug come from? I mean, there's obvious, uh, obvious ways and words and, and reasons it came, but where did, it, where did it actually come from? Whose idea was it? And then sure. how were you successful in getting the domain uh, name? I was looking it up. I'm like, yep, they own nug.com. That's probably self-worth a lot. But so give me the history of the, the, how you came up with the name. Yeah. So we were looking for uh, a, a brand name and we kind of iterated around a few none worth mentioning at this point. Uh, but then I have to give credit to my partner, my co-founder. He, he really is into intellectual property, uh, trademarks, copyrights. And we started kind of honing in on Nug. We saw that Nug.com was available. And, and, and Nug, so to answer your question, Nug is a slang term for weed, for cannabis. I mean, it's been used uh, often and, and for a long time within the industry. Um, and so when we saw Nug.com become available, um, it sort of sparked our interest. We said, hey, what can we do here? Can, can, we, we talked with an attorney. Is this something we could trademark, something we could copyright? Can we build a brand around this and can we protect it? As those answers started coming in, we, we decided to pull the trigger on the nug.com domain and then we just started building from there. I love it. And now that we've established we're about the same age, I think we started using that term uh, probably at the same time, but which we can I'm get sure. into later. Sorry, mom, uh, but uh, it was probably <laughs> earlier than what uh, our parents probably thought we were. But uh, well, let's um, let's switch gears just a little bit and get into kind of your personal journey. And then we'll kind of get back into the business side, sure. if you don't mind. Let's talk about where, where are you from? I know you and I had a conversation before this, and but I think it's important to understand kind of how, where, how you grew up and how you got into cannabis. So where are you from? And then I'll kind of throw the other questions as you, you know, answer that one. Sure. Uh, I'm from the Bay, uh, Northern California, specifically uh, the uh, East Bay area of uh, the San Francisco Bay area. Um, I uh, started, you know, just as you said, sorry, mom, I did start dabbling with with cannabis, uh, you know, in high school, as, as many uh, teenagers do. And uh, but, you know, it's just just a hobby, just fun. I went to college in Colorado 
And again, sorry, mom, but I had a little hobby grow in the closet, you know, uh, just kind of fooling around and having some fun with roommates. Um, and then I went from there, I went to grad school and uh, I studied uh, engineering and environmental, environmental chemistry, in, in which I have a, a PhD in now. And I was, I was just, again, in a, I was a consumer at the time and I did like the it, cannabis has always been a part of my life. It's been a part of my daily routine helps me. It's my, it's my glass of wine at night, so to speak. I, I've always been a cannabis consumer. Uh, after I finished my PhD, I was kind of just looking at the landscape and I saw a real need. Well, uh, here I, I saw the cannabis industry within ca California starting to formalize. It was moving away from uh, uh, collective type of agreements and more towards a commercial business. And I, I saw opportunity there. And more specifically, I saw the opportunity for building quality specific lab, lab based quality specifications. And so I wanted to use my PhD to uh, help the cannabis industry. So in 2008, I formed CW Analytical, which was one of the very first cannabis specific labs in the country. And we started working on the underlying science of how do you test cannabis? How do you test cannabis derived products? Um, so that, that's where I started. And we went out and started selling those services to dispensaries. And, and then I, from there, I just opportunity started to present itself. And from there, I, I built what is now NUG. Awesome. You know, and, and one thing that I, a little commonality, I'm not going to compare University of Colorado to Northern Arizona University, but what I will say is who would have known back when we were going to college that uh, you know, the, the cultures of it being kind of a little bit more acceptable to, to use and smoke weed uh, would help us later on in life mm -hmm. as it is today as we're uh, in cannabis. Because when I went to uh, NAU, even the, the teachers were very open about, uh, you know, about consuming cannabis. And that, this was obviously about the same time you were back in university. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so what about, t tell me on that analytical laboratory background, uh, you and I talked obviously before this, uh, loved the conversation. How did, um, having that background, particularly in dealing with city officials and operators before you started, Doug, how did that help give you a competitive advantage? And what did you learn? Yeah, so the landscape at the time, I, I sort of alluded it to, to it earlier, uh, the landscape at the time was really just a patchwork of, of city and some state regulations. And so there were some dispensaries, uh, and actually the dispensaries at the time were the only licensed entity. Um, and when I say licensed, it's, you know, quasi-licensed. But the, the products that were being sold in the, in the dispensaries, you know, magically appeared. They, they, where, did, where were they grown? Where were they manufactured? How did they get there? Nobody asked that question. Um, and again, I, so I started building this quality specification. We sort of sat in between, you know, it was based, we worked with, with the dispensaries and said, hey, as products come in, let us test them and let us help you learn about these products. Um, and so, so th that is how I, you know, I built inroads into the industry. Uh, but more specifically, my background, my, my science background and my nonprofit science background at that time. So this is about two, three years prior to my entry into cannabis. So early 2000s. Um, I was working to advise public policy. I was using science to advise public policy around water quality, environmental regulations around pesticides and pollution control in, in rivers and, and, and uh, um, uh, ocean ecosystems. So I had a lot of experience working with public officials, public offices, uh, attorneys, 
local community stakeholders, and that translated extremely well into the cannabis industry. Uh, so now fast forward 2008, 2009, 2010, we were doing lab work. We were understanding more and more about the products that, that were being sold at dispensaries. And that was exactly the time that communities, uh, city governments were starting to say, hey, we want to look at this. We want to open this up. We want to regulate this. We want to get tax revenue, but we know nothing about it. So my history uh, of working with uh, community groups and government agencies combined with the, the more recent knowledge we were learning from the cannabis products at the time really teed me up perfectly to be able to walk into meetings with public officials and community stakeholders and talk to them and present information to them and help them make decisions around how they want to open up the cannabis industry in their community. Awesome. And was there like a, a specific moment when you go back and, you know, somebody like that, that t spends that much time in learning and getting their PhD, at what point along the process were you, were you dead set on like, I'm going to apply this to the cannabis industry or, or did it take some time once you start getting involved, uh, you know, with your company? I'm just, I'm just curious as to how soon you knew. Um, I, I knew I knew pretty quickly. Uh, I it was so as I'd say before we founded the lab again. That was 2008. So maybe a year or so before, as I was looking into the landscape and kind of looking at you know what what it would cost to rent a commercial space to 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 buy the equipment that we needed, the science equipment we needed, and to and to build out even just a rough lab. You know, we just needed to get started. So as I was putting those budgets together, uh, and I was looking at the the opportunities or, you know, reading newspapers about the local communities that were starting to have meetings and starting to, to talk about cannabis. I knew right then and there that something was going to happen in California. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. And, and, and as I just described science and my degrees and my ability to talk with uh, public uh, officials was, was really, those were my advantages. Those were my key advantages into being into in being able to break into the industry. Awesome. And then uh, again, this is kind of referencing our conversation, but kind of pulling it out back out again uh, that we had prior to this. But why did you st uh, start Nug personally? Like from a lifestyle standpoint, like what were you trying mm -hmm. to maintain? Uh, what and and what have you maintained? I mean, what was the what was another kind of personal reason to to start the business? Sure. Um, well, I it, I'm never truly, well, I, I'm, I'm starting to get satisfied, but I guess I was never truly satisfied was with where I was as a, as a person and, and as in, in my career, I had done well in school. I had gone through uh, postdocs. I had, you know, studied at, at, at very accredited institutions and then done public policy, science to inform public policy. But, and all of that felt very, very good. But at the same time, I was building a family. I was, I was having kids, uh, I got married, I had kids, and, and I wanted to just provide a better life. So while I was satisfied with the work I was doing, I wasn't satisfied with the opportunities it was creating for my family. So uh, that, was, that was part of the math. That was part of my decision. Um, I knew I needed to create something more. So I, I again, I, I to you know, belabor the point a little bit that I used my experience to to build to build the lab, and then at that point I was getting a lot of questions. We were working with producers about how to best produce a cannabis pro product. How do you uh, uh, how do you make a consistent infused product? And I was getting tons and tons of questions about how to do that. And I. 
it just sparked my interest again. I got that bug again. I said, oh man, I want to, I want to do something more. And, and that was it. It was, it was right there at my doorstep. I, I, at that time I said, I want to build a brand. I want to build a cannabis brand. I want to have a, 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 a wide offering of products and and at that again, at that time, it wasn't retail focused. I wanted to build a high quality, affordable cannabis brand, and so that's where it started. Got it. That's and, where Nug started. Uh, like personally, uh, in you, uh, big skier or snowboarder? Can't remember which one was it. And uh, and your daughter, snowboarder, now, competitive snowboarders, yeah. correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, snowboarders. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that that the, your so the the entrepreneurial dream kind of when I just remembering our conversation, just kind of reading up. Um, I mean, you almost, I think you took a loan to get some of the equipment for your lab. So, I mean, this is truly kind of the American dream. I think it's been so long ago that you, uh, forget, you know, kind of, uh, to, to the, uh, you know, to the extent you dug deep in order to, to live mm -hmm. this American dream. It's true. And then, so you, you homeschooled your, your girls, right. To, to kind of mm -hmm. be able to be on the mountain quite a bit. And, and then all of a sudden what, what happened, what was the result of homeschooling and then getting to snowboard i mean originally i think it was for you and your wife so you could ski and snowboard but what did uh, it turn out well how did it turn out sure max i look i could talk about both of these topics my family and snowboarding and also my, my business i can talk about these forever so uh you're pulling at my heartstrings here um yeah you know so i've always wanted to find alternative paths uh in life uh, I am an entrepreneur, just as you said, and, and so by nature, I think entrepreneurs are always looking for alternative paths. Um, so I did that in business and continue to do that in business. And I did that in my personal life, too. So my wife and my wife and I are, are very are, we're aligned on this. We're, we're like thinkers. Um, we were uh, we pulled our kids from the public school system. So we decided to uh, it's, it's, it's independent study. It's, it's similar to homeschool, but it's independent study. It's, it's guided through a school, but largely done at home. What that did is that afforded us the time to travel and do things that we like to do as a family. And what we really like to do is to be in the mountains and be on the snow and be snowboarding. So we started our kids as snowboarders when they were three years old. They got on a, a snowboard team by the time they were, I don't know, either four or five. Um, and, and, you know, we did it actually sort of selfishly so that my wife can, and I can get out and snowboard, uh, on our own. Uh, but then next thing we knew the kids loved this. And, uh, as I sit here now <laughs> in my, in my mid forties, uh, my wife and I in our mid forties are empty nesters. Cause, uh, I have my, my youngest daughter who is just turned 15 is a competitive snowboarder at a, at a, a an elite school in, in Colorado that, that focuses just on winter athletes. And then my oldest daughter, who is just about to turn 17, is also as part of the, the culture and, the, and the, the as well. She's on a team in the Truckee area in California. And uh, so both kids are on the hill probably 70, 80, 90 days a year and doing nothing but snowboarding. And by the way, they get straight A's. Actually, my <laughs> we have a little joke in the family whenever 420 comes up, uh, my whenever the number 420 comes up, <clears throat> my daughter just got a 4.2 GPA and she texted me and said, Dad, I did this for you. So uh, it makes me happy. I love it, I love it. Uh, let's change gears a little mm -hmm. bit. Tell me, uh, how would you describe the culture at NUG? I never asked you that, but I kind of want to hear how you sure. have built. I mean, you've got 240 something odd employees now. How have mm -hmm. you built it? Clearly, you're building a, you know, a specific type of culture that's probably unique to you know, kind of what you and your founders mm -hmm. wanted. But how would you describe it and, and uh, how is it evolving? 
So we have one one major tagline. It's not used so much externally, although I do, we do use it, but internally we use it often and we repeat it often ad nauseum. And that is our mission is to normalize the cannabis experience. <clears throat> I mean, it's pretty broad, but we think about that every day. Everything we do is to normalize the cannabis experience. We want, uh, we want cannabis consumers to be respected as normal, you know, normal citizens. Uh, um, we, we shouldn't be judged just because we choose to smoke or consume cannabis instead of drink, drink alcohol. Um, we, so we should, and we should be afforded the same access uh, to cannabis as the rest of the, the world is to alcohol, beer and wine. Um, so that's really the underlying mission. We, we want to provide an opportunity for cannabis consumers to purchase and consume their cannabis in a respectable environment. And so that it was a, we were really able to achieve that once we started to open up retail stores and we started creating the environment that we all had envisioned, uh, which is just a uh, not I don't mean high end in terms of expensive. I mean, high. it's a high end store in terms of when you walk into this store, you feel good, you feel respected, you see the products you want, you're not intimidated in, to ask questions and you you buy the products at a, at a very competitive price and you're happy with the experience and then you're happy uh, you know that you're, you're happy trying new products and uh, and eventually that all that normalization factor is what is going to drive the opening up of this marketplace I love it I've seen some pictures online I can't wait to uh, visit one of those stores for sure uh, tell us it and I know you we've we've touched on this so I don't want to act like we, you haven't given me some good info but I just want to uh, dig in a little bit more get some specifics on I mean, what else would you attribute your success at NUG to? Like, what, what are the things that you did uh, early? And then second, and I'll repeat this question because I, I don't like throwing multiple questions at people when I'm uh, interviewing them usually. But, uh, you know, second is give me the, like the, the, how much time you spent cultivating before you start moving down the supply chain and before you open the store. Because I think it sounds like to the, uh, to the listener that, you know, it just happened so quickly, but I, I remember there being a different timeline where you oh, yeah. really were focused on, on uh, cultivation. And then you kind of moved down the supply sure. chain and figured out like you mm -hmm. needed to, uh, if you wanted to really control the experience of the customer, you really needed to control the retail as well. But uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, I'll repeat the question. Tell us a little bit more about you, what you attribute your success to at NUG. And then I'll ask the secondary. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll go with the first question. Um, I can't take all the credit. I mean, I, I have I have to give credit to my team. Uh, and my first, my co-founders. There's uh, there's four of us total. And we have been to been to to war <laughs> together. We're still in war together, and we stand by each other's side. So that's fantastic. I have partners that I can trust. Uh, that's number one. Uh, and then we have very good managers all of whom I can trust. Uh, they know their job. They know their lane. They know what they need to do to get their job done. And they know how to work with uh, their other co-managers. And then, of course, the, the employees, the frontline employees that are uh, cultivating the plants, packaging the products, and, and also uh, uh, the bud tenders at the retail store. I, I, I mean, that those are the people I rely on day in and day out to do their job, to show up every day, especially during this COVID time to, you know, we had, we were not shut for one day during all of, all of COVID. So I have to thank all of the employees for 
you know, keeping their big boy pants on and, and coming to work and, and really, really getting behind this company. It is the, it is the commitment of every one of us that is what's driving this company forward. I love it. And then second, give me a, give us the uh, uh, timeline in which, you know, how you started and when, at what point you moved, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just saying the, the sure. continuums, like you moved mm. from uh, seed all the way to you know retail, but what did that look like in action? Yes. Uh, so to paint the sort of, many people might ask why, so why we wanted to get vertically integrated in that way. And, and the reason is, well, we were cultivators we were selling uh, cannabis. It was very roughly branded. Uh, so, I mean, it's essentially a, a commodity. I mean, there was a lot of, not in terms of pricing, but in just in terms of, it's just cannabis. It's just weed and it's, it's in a bag and you sell it at a dispensary. I and mean, it was, that's where the industry was. We wanted more as a, as a, as a fledgling company at the time, we wanted more. We, so we started building out some creative packaging. We started create, building out some creative branding and getting those onto shelves. And that is when we started getting pushback from dispensaries. It was easier to sell a either roughly or non-branded cannabis product to a retailer and that dispensary would put their own sticker on it and sell it. That was easier. As soon as we started putting our own brand on it and trying to exert some brand and price control, we started getting a lot of pushback. That's when I knew, well, there was an opportunity in there, but I knew that that is what we needed to focus on. So it became very clear. The way that we were going to build a brand was controlling that brand. And the way we were going to control that brand was to build a retail experience. So we started, our first project was in, started around 2014, 2015, didn't open that store until about 2018, uh, maybe close to 2019. So that just gives you an idea. It takes, at that, that time, it took years to get a retail project open, years. So this was not a, a quick overnight thing for us. This was very thoughtful, very purposeful. And we, uh, we, we, we were in it for the long haul. Since then, it's become a little bit easier. You can, we can now open a store maybe in, in, in one to two years. Uh, but still, that's, that's long. You got to be dedicated. You got to be funded. You got to be committed. And you got to wake up every day and just push the ball a little bit forward. Yeah, I, I love the organic, uh, no pun intended, the organic uh, you know, kind of path that you guys have taken. I think everybody has seen since we've been hiring people in the cannabis industry for the last, you know, four, four or five years uh, since the inception, you see so many people that ran out, were lucky enough to get a license. And then they, they were like, Hey, we're going to be vertically integrated. They didn't really know much about either right. direction. And uh, you know, some of them have right. figured it out. Some of them haven't, uh, but there's been uh, some, uh, a lot of learning lessons, I think from everybody, but well, um, actually, I, I, absolutely, Max. Good point, and you, you're sparking something that I want. I want to to address. I get I get a lot of questions from newcomers into the industry saying, you know, how how should I approach the cannabis industry? How should I enter it? And really, there's only two answers. One is if you've got a just a a boatload of money, go buy go buy an enterprise, go go buy somebody, or go buy something. Not, you know, there's only, you know, you can count the number of people on one hand that could do that probably. So really the more common answer is pick your lane and stay in it. I, so I advise people to do what I didn't do. 
I advise people to do what I did not do, which is I advise people to pick a segment in the industry that they're passionate about, that they, they like, that they have a, a particular expertise in and focus on it. You're going to do, let's say that's, let's say you're a chef. Okay. That's very clear. Your, your path should be in edibles, edible manufacturing, focus on that, build a kitchen, build a product line, build a brand, focus on just your edibles line. Uh, you're going to have a lot more success if you do that. It was a long, long, hard road for us to build vertical integration. I don't recommend it for the faint of heart. And frankly, if I were to restart today, I probably would not build a vertically integrated business as, as we have today. I would start more singularly focused. But again, the times when we started our business, I had to do this. There was no supply chain. There, there was no formal industry. I had to do what we did. I'm just saying if I were to redo it today, if, I, if, 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 if I'm advising someone to do it today, I would advise them to do it differently. All right. What specific things can, that come to mind that you guys are working on to continue the customer experience uh, in your, in your you know, flagship retail stores? So the customer experience was always a focus of ours uh, from inception of our retail idea and, and all the way through the design of our stores. We've designed our stores, uh, it's sort of cliche, but it's a, it's a hybrid um, um, Apple model. We have a, a divided sales floor uh, with uh, about three quarters of the sales floor looks like an Apple uh, layout, meaning there's, there's product displays and there's butt tenders there and you can, you can see the products, you can talk about the products, you can ask questions and you can start your order. But being that it's cannabis, being that it's largely a cash business and being that it's highly regulated, you cannot convert, you cannot finish your transaction there. So you walk to the other roughly 25% of the store where these all of these point of sale uh, counters are and you uh, finish your transaction there with your bud tender. Uh, and you can, you can still look at products, still buy more, add to your cart and that sort of thing. But that's where you tr do your final transaction and then, that, and then you leave. Um, so I lay, I lay that all out there because you're asking about the customer experience. And that's how we designed the store. That, that is the customer experience that we wanted. We wanted it to be interactive and educational. Um, and then we wanted you to have a, an easy transaction of, of actually paying and then leave. We were, and it's been good. It, it, it has been good, uh, but that is an extremely challenging design uh, uh, or you know, retail philosophy um, and when COVID comes into the picture. Because now with COVID, we have these beautiful stores with these beautiful showrooms that are meant to be educational and, and interactive, but I, but I can't let people into the store. I got to limit capacity. And when people are in the store, they want to just wait in line. I mean, it, it's just, so they're just, I have a line snaking through this beautiful showroom of products and people are just waiting in line and they're looking at their phone. So the customer experience was lost during COVID and that's unfortunate. It is what it is. A lot of things were lost during COVID. Uh, retail customer experience was lost, not only for cannabis, but for other businesses. Um, so that's unfortunate. Uh, things are changing and, you know, stores are opening up. We have now adapted. And so what we've done is we now use a digital queue system instead of forcing people to stand in line. That's brought back a lot of interactive customer experience within the store. Um, 
and and now we are getting back to being able to have a, a dialogue and educational conversation and then a, uh, and then a sales transaction. So we're getting back to what we wanted to build. It's just going to take a little more time. Got it. And then you, you've alluded to this, but I, I, I love, uh, you know, your roots are in California. It's the biggest market in the world. Uh, how else is the California market different than other states and industries from your perspective, uh, you know, talking to a subject matter expert? Sure. Um, well, California is known for its flower. It, it just, it, it just is. I mean, if you think about decades ago, uh, and maybe, uh, maybe more recently, uh, California is a major supplier of cannabis flower to the rest of the country. Um, that's a fact. And so the, the, the country and arguably the world recognizes California cannabis flower, Humboldt, Mendocino, Trinity. I mean, these names, uh, this the ter terroir, uh, you know, it, it's real. People seek that out. Uh, and so as part of the culture in California, uh, flower, cannabis flower still makes up the bulk of the sales uh, at retail. So can uh Cannabis flower packed packaged in eighths, quarters, ounces, whatever it may be, and pre-rolled joints make up at minimum 60%, at minimum, sometimes 70% of all sales within the state. So that's different than other states where uh, you might see more manufactured goods or you might see more medical topicals, uh, sublinguals, and things like that. California is very driven by flower. And, and are you alluding to the quality you, you believe in California uh, to a certain extent is just better because you guys have been doing it longer and, and is that what we're kind of kind of pointing at? Yes. Yes. Okay. It, 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 what's, yes. It's the quality of the flower for sure. Uh, absolutely. That can't be understated. It's, but it's also the, the culture. You and I are using this word culture. You also hear this word lifestyle, cannabis lifestyle, cannabis culture. But I are, and, and those are, those are real things. You know, that's how we, that's how we live and sort of um, experience cannabis. And maybe we wear a t-shirt or where we wear a hat, you know, that's the culture and lifestyle side. I argue that in California, at least, it goes deeper than culture. It actually goes to identity. People in California have actually ingrained that culture and that lifestyle into their identity, into their being. And so, uh, you know, we grow up with cannabis, with high quality cannabis, cannabis flower being easily accessible. And uh, so cannabis flower is the top seller in California. Got it. And then why, why would you, from your perspective, why are other MSOs looking into California and leaving or not entering? So the, the MSOs uh, for your audience, the multi-state operators, these are the, you know, large cannabis companies who have some sort of operation in, in multiple States. Some of them are, are Canadian based, some are not, um, but they'll have operations in some of the smaller states, uh, but many of them, actually, arguably most of them, do not have a very strong footprint within California. And but they want, but they want every MSO wants to look at California and wants to build something here because, again, this is the largest in, largest uh, market in, in the world for cannabis. But we just have such a I don't know, for lack of a better word, weird, <laughs> weird regulatory system, challenging regulatory system in California and the market and the sort of 
consumers willingness to outsiders uh you know there's a lot of walls up in california so there really has not been an mso that has successfully gotten a very strong foothold in california california is still dominated by local players and some of them whom are bigger than some of the msos uh, but local players do dominate the california market got it and would you say uh from your opinion perspective regulatory and compliance is stricter in california than other most states i don't think strict is the right word uh, i think that the the strictness of regulations across the country is starting to equalize uh but the confusion in california i use the word confusion and and actually a lot of states are learning from california's mistake here. California set up a two-tiered system, which has, it gives local control. So we have two, this, I know this can get annoying and, and even confusing, but we, in California, can, cannabis is regulated at both the local and the state level. And when statewide regulations came in, those statewide regulations gave a lot of control to local municipalities. So what that did, so some local municipalities, you know, these are the counties and the cities, they just outright banned. Some opened their doors and said, come on in. And others said, oh, come on in, but you have to do X, Y, and Z, and you're gonna pay 10% gross receipts taxes. And so what this has created is just a patchwork of regulations around the states, and there is not clear guidance on how you can operate. You need to know your local uh, regulations. You need to know the state regulations on how you operate. And if let's say you're a cultivator, you need to know the regulations in your local municipality on how to cultivate. And, and you also need to know, make sure you're complied at the state level. And then if you're selling that product to other municipalities, say if I grow in San Francisco and I sell in LA, I need to know the LA regulations. I need to know what their tax structure is. I need to know what their structure is for reporting whenever an invoice is generated or shipping manifest is generated. And, and that's just going to LA and now add San Diego. I need to know their regulations. They collect, San Diego is one of the cities that actually collects taxes from producers from out of the city. So I need to know that and I need to pay those taxes regularly. So that patchwork has just made so much confusion in the state uh, that it's made it hard to, uh, you know, for, to essentially roll up the state and create a massive uh, business within the state. Gotcha. And is this, is that part of the reason why you say you guys are three or four years behind where you think you should be is just that confusion in regulations and compliance? Absolutely. 100% yes. And to put a fine point on that in 2017, the year prior to state regulations, there was over 2,500 dispensaries in the state of California. In January of 2018, the first month of regulations, that reduced astronomically down to about 200 to 250, because that was only, only about 200 to 250 were able to get through some sort of licensing process. And then it's taken years, that was three years ago. As we sit here now, there's close to 700, approximately 700. We are still nowhere near the number of retail stores that this state needs. That's crazy. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in San Diego. My brother lives there. And I remember you know, a few years ago, seeing where they were letting these stores open was almost embarrassing. They were putting them in the corner of like an industrial area, like not even giving yes. them a chance uh, to yes. start out. So uh, just from, from my layman's view, I was seeing uh, kind of a lot of that. Uh, what about, uh, this is kind of a big question, but I'm gonna throw it at you. What's the biggest lesson you've learned along your journey? 
we've talked about a few of them, but I just want to yeah. like try to put you on yeah. the spot. Like, what is the, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? Well, you're right. There are a couple. Um, and I think a couple of them are a little bit more you know, kind of a, a personal lesson. Uh, and one is, and I kind of, I mentioned this to you earlier, the strength of my partners. It took me a little time to really, really, it's not, this isn't trust, but to let go. Uh, so I had to learn to, to say, here, here, you guys take this ball and run with it. So, you know, that's one. You can't build an empire on your own. You've got to trust your, your, your partners. I, I'm sorry, trust isn't the right word. Trust is one thing. Then you got to give them the leash. You got to just take their leash off and just let them run. Again, an empire can't be built alone. Um, so that's one thing. The other is, and, and more, I'd say more specific to your podcast and your audience, it's hiring talent. Hiring ta How do you find talent? How do you find people you trust? How do you find the right level of talent? That has been a huge, huge challenge. Um, we we did raise a Series A round. We did start, uh, you know, preparing for what we thought the future of California would be. And in doing so, we hired C-suite executives. We we're building out, you know, an executive team, a finance team, a marketing team, you know, the whole C-suite, and all very, very good people, all extremely talented in their fields but their skills really did not translate to cannabis the way I thought they would. And we spent time and we spent money uh, learning that. So today our hiring practices are, are much more focused on just finding, we're extremely conscious about what we pay, how we compensate, whether that's cash or, uh, or uh, share shares, we're extremely conscious on, on how we do that. And also we are extremely conscious on not over hiring. So hiring the right level of person for the right job and understanding that the person you hire today who is perfect for that job today might not be the same person that is perfect for that job tomorrow, but you can't hire tomorrow's person if today's job doesn't even exist. So that was a big learning for us as a company. Got it. Yep. I, I you know, what you're saying, it's almost a saying, I'd rather miss a great hire today than hire the wrong person. It sounds yeah. like you might've, uh, without getting into details, uh, and yep. undermine anybody. I, I think you've kind of learned that the other thing that I, I, you know, just picking up and this has just been an off, awesome conversation. The trust in your partners is so important. There's so many different, uh, companies that we've had the pleasure of working with and, um, the, there's a lot of dysfunction and, and fighting over, you know, the shareholders just because mm -hmm. they're, they're not on the same page or fighting over who came in when over what, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, starting to settle itself in a lot of cases, which is good to see. And we've been in positions where we're a third party coming in and taking votes to vote who's mm -hmm. actually on the board. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, that, you know, you focusing and, and really uh, identifying that the trust in your partners and letting them run is you know something a good thing to take away from this conversation for this business, um, and then the hiring. I love it. You're talking our language here. What it's it, specific to the hiring. I think you you and I might have touched on this, but again, you know, I love your background. Love the fact that you're a subject matter expertise. What what backgrounds have worked for you um, that you when you've pulled mm -hmm. somebody? Obviously, you know now you can kind of get some people that maybe have a little experience, um, but but you know when you couldn't, what what backgrounds uh, converted to uh, know how the most, or was it, was there really mm -hmm. no backgrounds that you start identifying as a commonality? 
Well, the so back to my previous point on the the translation of the executive functions in the skill levels wasn't quite there. It just it, again, not the people, wonderful people, very highly qualified in their fields. Just the translation of those skills into the cannabis industry at that level didn't quite work. That, but where it does work is is at the operational level. So at two levels, one is sort of the, the VP, the VP and, and upper management level. That is our most upper management now that we have no C-suite. Uh, and then also, of course, the you know the lead lead uh, managers, so the shift managers. And what I mean there, so I'll give you an example. We. Um, as we were building out our sales team, we we're looking for a few years ago, we we're looking for a sales director and uh, a, a great candidate fell in our lap and he came from the uh, beer and wine industry. And he in, in particular, he came from craft beer and he had, he had managed sales teams for a couple of very, very fast growing uh, craft beer companies. And that translated extremely well to cannabis sell, sales. At the time, he didn't know cannabis like the back of his hand. He does now. Uh, but he knew about a product, a branded product. He knew how to manage SKUs. He knew how to, uh, at that point, he wasn't the operations lead, but he knew how to tie into the operational pi pipeline and understand what was coming down the pipeline. And he knew how to create sales strategies to sell those products into stores. Uh, and he knew how to how to talk to accounts, to buyers at the accounts. So that was a, a skill set and an individual who translated extremely well. Um, we had uh, we currently have a, a, a woman who came to us from uh, the health and beauty. She, she cosmetics lines and some of her products are on Whole Foods shelves, Target shelves and things like that. She came to us and she now is our VP of operations. And she understood while she came from branding and packaging and co-packing, there was she un, that that translated well. Instead of doing co-packing, we do our own packing, but she knew, okay, she knew how to build a pipeline, how many, you know, how many uh, how many cases of, of the cardboard boxes do I need? How many Mylar pouches do I need okay, to, how, how many chocolate bars are coming off the line over this amount of time? When, when do I order? So just coordination of that pipeline and, 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 and really building team coordination around that, uh, that was a skill set she had and it translated extremely, extremely well. So the, the much more hands-on functional roles, if you find the people who have those experiences, those translate very, very well today, and at least in our experience. Gotcha. And that director of sales, uh, what a cool guy that is. He's like the most interesting guy in the world. He sold craft beer and now he's selling cannabis. Yep. Like everybody wants yep. to be that guy's friend. I mean, introduce <laughs> me to that guy. Uh, Absolutely. Any, anyway, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear uh, how did COVID impact you both personally and professionally? You talked about, and I think this is probably a little bit more specific to California because Arizona was, was a little bit more lenient. I know you know some of our customers in even Chicago, that the regulations were a little bit different. Uh, they deemed, you know, sometimes the, they deemed cannabis as an essential in some states. Clearly, they didn't. They just in California that was different. So you talked mm -hmm. a little bit about, about that. But how else were you impacted professionally, and then how were you impacted personally? Uh, well. I am proud to say, and I have to give credit to one of my partners here. Uh, he, he, who really kept cracking the whip in, in, in a positive way. Uh, we, did, I'm proud to say, we did not close for one day due to COVID throughout the the, the entire last year. So we maintain we all of our retail stores were open, um, and we were in production the entire time. 
so I have to thank him and I have to thank my staff for, for, for being there and being committed to this. We've also had an extremely low rate of, uh, of COVID exposures and incidents of, of COVID. I attribute that, well, one, we have a relatively young workforce. Um, and I also attribute it to just the, the protocols that we have in place. Every, everybody has been extremely compliant, wearing masks, washing hands, wearing gloves, changing gloves, all of the above. Um, so the, the team has really done well around COVID. Um, it did create challenges, as I mentioned earlier, that at the retail stores, it just limited the number of people that we can bring in. Um, and so sales did struggle early on, uh, but we, we worked our way through that. We, we adapted and sort of changed pricing structures and, and changed the way flow works through the store. And we also off, offered things such as pre-order online and, and uh, curbside pickup, that kind of stuff. Um, COVID, COVID restrictions were extremely strong in California. I mean, we, we're still in a shutdown. Uh, just this week, my county is coming out of a shutdown and restaurants are just opening this week. So, but nuts. Uh, but it's, it, anyway, it, it's just been really, really tough for us. But again, I just go back to the strength of our team, the commitment of our team, and, uh, and, and really coming in every day and keeping us open. One thing that was great for us, uh, for two reasons, us as a company and us as an industry, is that California, when it went into lockdown, and as it continues today, it did declare cannabis business, businesses as essential. And that the entire, the entire industry, from cultivation all the way through retail, were deemed essential. And that did really two things for us. One is the obvious, it kept people, it kept businesses open and kept people employed. So that's great. But the thing that's maybe not so obvious is that designation changed the way the world looks at cannabis. It, it, it just fundamentally changes the way, at least, okay, the world, maybe that's an exaggeration. It fundamentally changed the way the state looked at cannabis. And we are, we are essential. We are deemed essential because we are a desired product and a desired industry. People want cannabis. And it was explicitly stated by, you know, the, the, the act of, of, of the legislature deeming us essential was sort of their acknowledgement, their, their nod of their hat to say, hey, this is, a, this is an industry that people want. They, they, let's help them grow as an industry and become respected. And I do believe that we are being looked at differently because of that designation now and more positively because of that designation now. I love it. And then what about, uh, I always love, and, and maybe these aren't as apparent because we're kind of getting through COVID, but any like personal COVID, like kind of blessings, like anything that, you know, you took away. I mean, you can look at it like, you know, this sucked. I was trapped or whatever that might be as some perspectives, but what were some things that you took away that you were, you know, positive things that you were able to, uh, you know, discern from the process? Um, well, the, the positive things and, and it, Really, I'd say it's a, it's around just skinning skinning down the company, uh, lightening the load, so to speak. So COVID forced us to make decisions that we knew we needed to make eventually, but it forced us to make decisions around: Do we need this office space? Do we need this conference room? Can we operate differently and more more lean? Uh, the answer was yes, and it became very clear. I thought I had to be at the office, you know, eight a.m. until five or six p.m. every day. I thought business wouldn't wouldn't the business wouldn't run without me there and putting out fires 
No, with me, it, it, the contrary actually happened. Uh, with me being le there less often, people started to take responsibility for problems on their own and we started problem solving. We've all learned to you know, pick up the phone and call and that that's used to be, well, hey, should I call this? No, just call. Just, <laughs> I mean, we have all come so accustomed to calling now and Zooming and you know, Google Meet, whatever it may be. Uh, it, it's, it has changed the way we work. Uh, everybody. And for us, it has just lightened our load. So we no longer have a corporate headquarters. We don't have massive conference room. We don't have all of these things that we used to have that we used to pay for. And the company is better off for it. Got it. And then talking about, we, we touched on this a little bit, but the cannabis industry's reputation as a whole, like where do you see the average consumer sees it now? And, and where do you think we all involved in the cannabis industry? Where do we need to get it? Like where, what are we aspiring to? Well, I'll use my statement about, uh, you know, my company statement that our mission is to normalize the cannabis experience. And I, I, that work still needs to be done. We still need to change the perception of the cannabis consumer. I think the cannabis industry as a whole has a positive, mostly a positive uh, um, uh, light in people's minds. But I think that that's driven mostly just by the economics. People are saying, oh, it's a new industry. There's opportunity. I can buy a stock. I can do this. I can do that. You know, they're looking at the economic benefits of, of, a, of an emerging industry. Not so much uh, those same individuals may or may not really be looking at the actual consumers and understanding, oh, these are normal people that are consuming their products. I think they're just looking mostly at the financials. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to still say cannabis is okay. Normal people consume cannabis. It's not a big deal. Um, I think cannabis needs to be uh, accessible on uh, similar to the level of, of beer and wine, uh, meaning it's except more. There's, there's not a store in every corner. I'm not, I don't want uh, you know planning and zoning people to get mad at me and say I'm trying to change the way we we lay out our cities and our businesses. No, but it needs to be more accessible. We should not have to drive, as you were mentioning earlier, we should not have to drive to the industrial areas of a city in order to buy our cannabis. We should be able to go to even a small boutique cannabis dispensary that might be right next to where you get your hair cut or your nails done. Uh, until that level of normalization happens. And I'm not talking about exposing children and all of that. Come on, we're adults here. We know how to do this in a safe and respectable way. But until the normalization of the consumer and the normalization of access to cannabis happens, uh, we're not truly going to be uh, a fully mature industry. And I, to your comment earlier, and I'm not, uh, maybe I am advocating a little bit. It's like, uh, it's like the glass of wine at the end of the day, except you don't have the hangover the next day. So there's mm -hmm. that too. Uh, mm -hmm. but so, uh, do you feel like you found your purpose in starting and in, in leading NUG? I know that's a really big question, but since we're a purpose-based leadership search firm, I have to ask, sure. but do you feel like you have found your purpose in, in what you're doing now? Yes, I do. I, I absolutely do. I've had, you know, with the, with all the ups and downs of the company and the amount of time it does take me away from my family. And, you know, I've, I've questioned that. Uh, but we, as I sit here right now, probably more so than ever, the answer is yes. I, f I feel fulfilled. I feel that this uh, is a very purposeful endeavor for me. I think coming out of the 
the the last year, the challenges we've had over the last year uh, related to COVID and and, and other uh, company issues we've had, and the strength that that the the renewed strength that that me and my co-founders have have, uh, the. Yes, I think we're all extremely aligned. We're all firing on all the same, all the, all cylinders and pointed in the right direction. And it feels extremely purposeful and extremely fulfilling. Absolutely. Gotcha. And you, and this is, this is my perspective after just getting to know you a couple of times. Uh, would you consider yourself an introvert that turned into an extrovert because you know, that that's what you needed to do in order to lead your business? Uh, mm-hmm. or, or were you always kind of an extrovert? Obviously you've, You've yeah. become an extrovert one way or another, either you were before or you've become one, but somebody that gets a PhD and does all the lab work that you've done in your yeah. life, I just kind of mark you as maybe an introvert and then became an extrovert. Is that the right assessment or how did it, how did you yeah. become yeah. I, I, I think that's fair, Max. I, I do. Uh, I would say socially, I am more of an introvert. I like to be around small groups of, you know, loved people. Uh, that's just, and I'm, I'm, and even in those situations, I'm relatively quiet. Uh, I am, it's, I am much more extroverted in terms of science and, and business. And, and I attribute that to just all of the work I did through grad school. I will stand up in front of an audience. I don't care if there's a hundred people or 5,000 people. And I've given talks to, you know, international audiences of a few thousand people. I love that. That is actually for an, for a personal and social introvert, like I am, I love to be on stage. I love to give talks. I like to educate people on things that I know. So things that I'm confident about, I'm extremely extroverted, but as soon as I get off of that stage, I want to go and put my, my, my head in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, um, I'm going to start wrapping up a little bit. We're, we go through, uh, it's about 10 questions or rather rapid fire. Um, so I'm just going to go shoot. It'll just be sure. whatever comes first. But what's the first thing you do when you wake up? <laughs> Check my email. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, what's your favorite book or a book you've read more than once? Uh, the uh, is it Shoe Dog is uh, by uh, uh, about Nike is an incredible story by Phil Knight. Uh, oh, yeah. Isn't that? yeah. Uh, so inc- incredible story about how he built Nike. Love it. Love it. Uh, what person has had the biggest impact on your life? My wife. She's my high school sweetheart. Love it. What is something on your bucket list that you're still waiting to check off, which I couldn't wait to ask you because you've done some pretty cool <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, it's, it was supposed to be checked off uh, this last year, but COVID prevented it uh, to go heli- heli- helicopter snowboarding in Canada. And we were supposed to go in January, but it didn't happen. So we're going to go next year. Got it. And are you a morning person or a night person? I'm a night person. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? <laughs> oh, God. Answering this question. <laughs> um, that's a darn good question. You know, I, unfortunately, boring answer. I'm, 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 it's not in my nature. I'm not an extremely spontaneous person. I'm, I'm, I'm to a fault. I'm too calculated. Which kind of makes sense with your background. So that that's, uh, that's yep. okay. Uh, and if the uh, last one, we'll kind of finish on. If you could change one thing about the world right now, what would it be? Mm. I, I mean, I'm trying not to get political here. I just, I, I, the division that is in the world is just hampering everybody. It's hampering our ability to, to, uh, you know, build businesses, whether cannabis or otherwise, it's hampering our ability to, you know, solve uh, social issues, economic issues. So uh, it's not, that's not my platform. It's not where I am in life or where I even really have a voice, but 
I wish we were just not so divided. Agree. Agree. All right, John. Well, I appreciate your time. I try to keep these under an hour just because when I listen to podcasts, if it's more than an hour, I'm usually like, I'm not listening to that, but this has been amazing. You've set the bar so high. We have uh, actually some really good other cannabis leaders coming up in the next couple months. And uh, you've set the bar really high for, for those conversations. Uh, have learned, got a lot of insights from you. Appreciate your time today. And uh, you know, anything else you want to, anything else you want to add? No, thank you for the kind word words, Max. Thank you for this opportunity. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, I love talking to, uh, to the world about cannabis and, and about Nug. And uh, if any of your viewers want to check us out, we're at Nug.com. Awesome. Go check them out at Nug, uh, Nug.com. You're listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Scouts. You can find all of our past and future podcasts at Scouts.com. Thanks a lot. All right. That's a wrap, John. That was amazing. I, I felt like I could have talked to you for like another hour. Um, yeah, that was a fast hour. Jeez. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to be respectful of your time. That's why I do the yep. intro ahead of time. So we can just yep. talk about stuff and I'm not going through uh, repetitive stuff, but man, the insights, uh, especially for on the California market, this mm-hmm. one, this it's recording, but this one, anything I say from this here, fine. obviously, fine. but uh, it's interesting because everybody has the same playbook and I've seen, mm-hmm. you know, from true leave to GTI to mm-hmm. know, flower one, to, I mean, you name it, all these companies, they all have the same playbook. They're like, we're going to start and this was, you know, a year or two ago when I was reading mm-hmm. those, we're going to go to the most regulated States because yep. that will set us up to be successful in, you know, in all the other States. But nobody really talks about California. Everybody that's actually tried to go to California has kind of gotten out and you mm-hmm. know, stayed away from it. And that's one of the most regulated states. So that that mm-hmm. playbook that they talk about, uh, it's interesting how it doesn't really kind of hold weight uh, necessarily when yep. you start talking about Good California. They, they need Good to point. say, except for California. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, we have the opportunity here. I'm confident that uh, we will be successful. I don't know if we're going to be, you know, uh, as if we're going to be doing acquiring or if we're going to be acquired, I don't know what the future of Nug is, but I do know that we're dedicated to be here and we're going to fight the good fight for a long time. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, I will, uh, if you're open to it, I'll make some introductions to you. Uh, and I probably will ask you, I, I, we're about to take on a CFO role and a CEO mm-hmm. search for uh, a, 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 a public company in Canada just mm-hmm. bought a company up in Northern California, Modesto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as soon as that is, you know, as soon as I've, we've got the details, more details on that, I've already talked to all the board members. I may run and say, Hey, would you know somebody, but it might be good to put you in touch with their board. Just sure. as you probably already know them, but, uh, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll remember you continue to put you in touch and, and, uh, without bothering you too much. And, uh, I'll keep in touch with you myself. If you need anything from me, don't hesitate to reach out. I appreciate it, Max. This was really fun. And if you want to do it again, or if you do a panel or whatever, please uh, keep me in mind. I really, I like doing these and again, you, you've got my contact, please reach out however I can help. Uh, you know, it, it all, what, what goes around comes around. So please keep, keep me in the loop. Awesome. You know what? That's exactly what I might do. I might do a panel. Like I'll have like Ben Kovlar and like a few other guys like you mm-hmm. and him and mm-hmm. you know, a few people like, cause I don't think many people have uh, done that successfully uh, lately. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen mm-hmm. some panels and it's usually kind of more of the second in commands and hired heads in there. Mm-hmm. I'd love to get some mm-hmm. people that have some depth and, and uh, longer histories in the business. Sure. So I appreciate sure. the opportunity and uh, thanks again. Cool. Have a good day. Thanks, Max. 
Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 right here on Star Worldwide Networks or wherever you get your podcasts.